So if you guys could, go ahead and stand with me as we read God's word. Starting at 2 Corinthians 12, 21. I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all others, and I warn them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them. Since you seek that proof, since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him. But in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that we, you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason, I write these things while I'm away from you. That when I come, I may not have to be severe in my use of the authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not for tearing down. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, you can be seated. Let's pray real quick. Father, uh, you are holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of your glory. Uh, we're thankful for your son, Jesus Christ, who alone has seen the invisible God and has made him known to us. I pray today that uh, your word would lead us to another glimpse of your glory in the face of Jesus Christ, and that in response to hearing and preaching and singing and praying and, and seeing your word, Lord, that we today would just worship you. Uh, we would fix our eyes upon the throne and we would worship you in holy love toward you and toward one another. Uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So the early church fathers, and particularly what's known as the patristics, this is the church fathers from about 100 to 600 A.D. All right, so the early church fathers, they had a magnificent way of speaking of Christ and salvation in particular. When they read this scripture, they zeroed in on a, on a particular teaching called the union with Christ. Salvation summarized by the, the patristics was the church participating in Jesus's relationship with the Father. Us being able to share in Jesus's relationship with the Father. 
One of the patristic fathers, his name is Gre- uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, he once said this, whatever Jesus didn't become or assume, taken to himself, he didn't save. And so what he means here is Jesus becomes or became fully human so that Jesus could save humans fully. By believing in Christ, he shared his relationship with us all and the benefits that come along with that relationship, the relationship with his father. This, way, this kind of thinking of salvation sometimes get lost in the wayside. Ironically, when we over-focus on the benefits and the gifts and we lose the person that they properly belong to. So an example of this, I could talk about the righteousness of Christ belonging to me by faith. He gives me his righteousness, and I can talk about that righteousness so much that I separate the righteousness from the Christ whom it properly belongs to and whom gives it to me by faith. So Paul protects his readers from this ghastly mistake by constantly putting the same teaching that the patristics emphasize, this teaching of union with Christ at the forefront of his writings. Uh, How does he do this? Uh, He uses the phrase, in Christ, with Christ, in him. When talking about salvation, he uses the phrase, through Christ. He uses it so many times, over and over and over again in his letters. We even see at the beginning Paul's own testimony this, this doctrine of union with Jesus Christ is at the, the core of what Jesus reveals to him. So on the, the Damascus road, right, the light shines down. It blinds Paul. He's probably scared out of his mind. And he asks to this, this voice that speaks from the sky, he says, Who are you, Lord? Because this voice spoke down and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So Jesus responds to this fearful question of, Who, who, who are you, Lord? And he says this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. So twice in Paul's conversion, Jesus teaches this doctrine of union with Christ. Paul is on his way. What's he he doing on the Damascus road? Well, he had just held the, the, the robes, the cloaks of the men who had just thrown rocks and killed Stephen, the first martyr of the church. All right, so he, was, he just did that, and then he had just gotten uh, permission from Jerusalem to go into Damascus and to drag, essentially, any Christians he finds there out and bring them back to Jerusalem. It says this, as he was on the road, he was, I quote, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was going to bind Christians at Damascus and, and literally bring them bound to Jerusalem, This was Paul's intention, going to Damascus. And then when Jesus reveals himself to him, he says, you would expect him to say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? But instead he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Jesus so identifies with his church, with his bride, that to persecute them, is to literally persecute him. Union with Christ is at the the foundation, the the first lesson, you could say, that Jesus teaches Paul. And it's the lesson that Paul, throughout all of his letters, repeats over and over and over again because he doesn't want you to forget righteousness, blessing, eternal life, sanctification, being made holy, having the love of God in our hearts. All these things are only ours because we are in Christ. They belong to him, and he shares them with us. And so 
The same thing happens here um, in our text today. In today's text, we're going to see that union with Christ and the protection of that union is really the entire purpose of true apostolic teaching. So as I understand it from Scripture, uh, particularly um, Acts, the book of Acts, the role, the major purpose of an elder, pastor, overseer, um, whatever you want to call them, uh, can be simplified to two primary functions. He's to keep watch over the flock in prayer, to pray for each member by name, and to intercede on their behalf. And Fudd, David, Joe, and I, we do that. We do that in members' meetings, and we also do it, do it individually, where we just pray through the, the list of people that come to Remedy Church by name. The second thing is the elders to keep watch over the flock by proclaiming and applying the word of God publicly and privately. So pastors are merely to stand upon the scripture and particularly the apostolic teaching and make it as plain as they can to the church. In this way, they seek for your union with Christ to be maintained and to be strengthened. In the Corinthians, Paul's authority in the Corinthian church, Paul's authority and intentions and even the outcome of his ministry is in question according to them. They're, they're to the point where they want to just essentially set Paul aside. And Paul spent a lot of the, the book defending his apostleship. He then talked about the, the Jerusalem collection, right, taking up money for the, the saints in Jerusalem. And then he continues to defend his apostleship. And he made it very clear to them. He distinguished himself from the so-called super apostles. And he, force, he forces the church to make this decision, this choice, between truth falsehood, Christ or another Jesus, God or Satan, Paul or these false apostles. And in this very last chapter, which is our text, he seeks to finally prove his apostleship so that he can protect the purity of the Corinthians and their union with Jesus Christ. So today we're going to look at four characteristics of apostolic teaching, four characteristics of apostolic teaching with the lens of he's trying to protect our union with Christ. So our first one is going to come to us from chapter 12, verse 21, through chapter 13, verse 2. And um, by the way, those online, if you cannot see the screen, if you go to remedychurch.org slash worship, um, the worship lyrics are on there, and then also the sermon outline is on there, remedychurch.org slash worship. So our first point is this. True apostolic teaching sees church discipline as necessary for guarding our union with Christ and the purity of the church. True apostolic teaching sees church discipline as necessary for guarding our union with Christ and the purity uh, of the church. So I grabbed chapter 12, verse 21, uh, because it helps explain chapter 13, 1 through 2. He's talking about this third visit and not sparing the church, and you're like, well, what's the context there? Well, Chapter 12, verses 20 through 21, he's talking about unrepentant sin, all right? And so Paul writes this, I fear that when I come again, my God may humble me before you, and I may have to mourn over many of those who sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality that they have practiced. This is the third time I'm coming to you. Every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. I warned those who sinned before and all others, and I warned them now while absent, as I did when present on my second visit, that if I come again, I will not spare them, uh, end quote. 
so I recently had a, a conversation, I was able to have a conversation with some high school students about church discipline, which is not a normal high school student topic, or even just a normal topic in general. Uh, but we were talking about, like, is it right? Is it ever right for a church to excommunicate someone, right, a member of the church? Excommunicate simply means bar them from taking the Lord's Supper. doesn't mean anything outside of that. And, you know, they, they kind of went around. People landed on different sides. But the, the majority of the students were very uncomfortable with the idea of forbidding communion to a person who is in unrepentant sin. More telling is in our conversation, we, we struggled to come up with scriptures specifically on church discipline. Just demonstrating, again, it's, it's not really a topic um, that is brought up. People don't generally sell books on church discipline. People generally don't do entire conferences on church discipline. And yet, according to Paul and other places in the New Testament, it's crucial to our health, the health of our relationship with Jesus, and the health of the local church in general. During the Reformation, a healthy church was defined, uh, it had two marks, generally speaking. The first mark was the true preaching of the gospel and word of God. It's a place where that takes place. The second mark was the proper administering of the ordinances or the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper. In that second mark lays the foundation for church discipline. Notice it says the proper administering. So that implies that there is also an improper administering of uh, the sacraments. And so part of the core of how the reformers defined the church, you had church discipline in the second mark. It was that important that it was just of all the marks you could come up with in the Bible, that was the two that they kind of focused in on. So here, Paul is actually talking about church discipline. He's going to quote Deuteronomy 19.15 in a very abbreviated form. He says this, every charge must be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, which begs the question, what charges are we talking about here? Paul's referring again back to 1220 and 1221. The charges of unrepentant quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, uh, disorder, impurity, sexual immorality, and sensuality are the ones that he lists off in verses 20 and 21 of the previous chapter. So these are the charges. Paul is hoping that when he comes, God will not humble him and he will not have to mourn over those who have sinned earlier and have not repented of these sins that we just listed off. Paul's hoping that on his third visit, his, his third visit to the Corinthian church, he'll find a repentant community and not a community mixed with those who repent and those who refuse to repent of sins. So the heart, so he quotes Deuteronomy, and the heart of the Deuteronomy passage is about how to conduct the people of God, how to conduct themselves in the promised land. And now Paul applies it to the church, how the church should conduct itself as the church, right? And so Paul's now applying it. And uh, this is a good little point. David Garland, one of the commentators on 2 Corinthians, he, he says this, behind Deuteronomy 19 is the assumption that it is better for someone who is guilty to go unpunished because of a lack of a, the requisite number of witnesses than to harm an innocent person's reputation. And so in this Deuteronomy context, it lays out 
you need two or three witnesses in order to even establish a charge. If not, you cannot establish a charge. It also then goes on to lay out laws against being a false witness. And so it's important, too, that these witnesses know that God is going to hold them accountable to what they bear witness as well, so that you don't have, you know, you don't pay two or three people to come establish a charge. So, so what does Paul have in mind here with this two or three witnesses? Uh, some very smart commentators, particularly D.A. Carson, take Paul to be calling the two to three witnesses and interpreting as his visits to the church. So it's the Paul's two to three visits. That's why he keeps referencing the third visit. Some people say that it's Paul's two or three warnings giving throughout his letters because there's actually four Corinthian letters written. This is the fourth. We only have two. Um, others, and I think this is the better way to take it, it's exactly how it's used in the Old Testament. It's literally talking about two to three different people that can bear witness to the charge you're bringing against someone. Uh, the reason I say this, you don't have to go far back in the text. If you go to chapter 12, 18, it says this, I urged Titus to go and sent the brother, talking about one of the Macedonian brothers, with him. And then if you go back to 2 Corinthians 8, the Jerusalem uh, collection, he sends Titus and two other brothers from the church of Macedonia. So it's, it's perfectly clear that we can understand the two to three witnesses here is Paul, Titus, and the Macedonian brothers. That they've gone, they've been in the Corinthian church, they've lived with them, they've worked with them, they've prayed with them, etc., etc., and so they can count as witnesses. Deuteronomy 19 is also used by Jesus in one of the two places where Jesus uses the word church in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, Jesus lays out kind of a step-by-step process of church discipline. He says it this way. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, and here's his quote, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Uh, end quote. So Jesus lays out the steps of church discipline, again, rooted in this Deuteronomy 19 passage. Interesting enough, just two quick points. The church discipline process starts with an individual member. Not, not like a pastor or, or an apostle or a teacher. An individual member, particularly the member who has been sinned against. That member is given power, authority, and commanded by Jesus then to go to the person who sinned against them and to talk it out, right? To try to win over their brother or their sister. The second thing is the end of church discipline doesn't end with the council of elders or the apostles or some teachers. It ends with the corporate body, the church. And so Jesus here is giving authority, giving power, and commanding and showing that it is the responsibility of members, any member in Remedy Church, right? It's the responsibility of members to carry out church discipline. Now, of course, when it gets to the, if it got to the church stage, right, where you're bringing it before the whole church, of course the elders are going to be involved in that process. But I just want to put this in front of us because Jesus isn't talking to the elders. He's talking to everyday church members. Um, it's, it's on us to 
exercise these steps of church discipline. Paul has already been involved in this with the Corinthian church. And uh, going back to his first letter, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, in 5 verse 13, he tells the entire congregation that they should, I quote, expel the wicked man from among you, in reference to a guy that slept with his mother-in-law and refuses to repent of it. And he, he looks at the congregation and he says, this is on you. You need to expel that man from the congregation. An idea of excommunication. In 1 Corinthians 6, he tells us not even to associate with brothers and sisters who commit sexual immorality and bear the name of Christ and refuse to repent, but to treat them like unbelievers, kind of like the Matthew 18, where Jesus says, treat them like Gentiles or tax collectors. So note that Paul is he's writing to the Corinthians, but he's not writing to the Corinthian elders. He's writing to the entire church. Again, this idea that it's part of our authority, it's part of our power, it's part of our responsibility to carry out church discipline. Holding one another accountable when we sin against one another is every member's responsibility. As a side note, um, if we don't do step one, like confront someone who sinned against us, we then shouldn't go over here and complain about that someone, right? I mean, that's fair. If you don't carry out church discipline over here, you forfeit your right to complain over here about being sinned against. Um, and then also, like, just general principles here. You don't, it doesn't always have to be sin. Like, let's say someone hurts your feelings. They said something that hurts your feelings. Instead of going over here and talking to other people, go to the person who hurt your feelings and just say, hey, that hurt my feelings, and then talk it out. Um, that's what Jesus is calling us to do as the first step, right? If it, if it escalates beyond that, that's when you use Deuteronomy 19. You establish every charge by two or three uh, witnesses. So Mark Dever summarizes the beauty of carrying out this often shied away from teaching of church discipline. He summarizes this in chapter 6 of his book called The Church. Fudd recommended this book a while ago. I highly recommend it as well. It's just a really good book on the general formations of the church and what the Bible says about the church in general. But on this one, he says this, Church discipline done correctly might bring a sinner to repentance. That's good. But it will always faithfully represent the gospel to the surrounding community. He continues, Finally, church discipline should be practiced in order to bring sinners to repentance, a warning to the other church members, health to the whole congregation, a distinct corporate witness to the world, and ultimately glory to God as his people display his character of holy love. And so behind church discipline, Paul's intent here when he says in verse 2 at the end of it, I will not spare them, talking about if he comes back and there's still people in unrepentant sin, I will not spare them. In doing so, he is sparing the other church members by warning them. He's sparing the witness of the church by maintaining it. He's actually extending mercy to those who are in unrepentant sin by not allowing them to wallow in sin. And finally, he's glorifying God by demonstrating that Christians ought to keep his commands. And so our first characteristic is true apostolic teaching. Um, true apostolic teaching sees church discipline as necessary for guarding our union with Christ and the purity of the church. So our second characteristic comes from verses 3 through 5 in chapter 13. True apostolic teaching aims at uniting people to Christ through faith, 
and calling people to examine or test their faith. So it aims at uniting people to Christ through faith and calling people to constantly, daily, be examining and testing their faith. He writes this, Since you seek proof that Christ is speaking in me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail to meet the test. End quote. So the Corinthians, they're questioning Paul. They're testing him, actually. And they're, they're seeking for him to prove that Christ is speaking in him. And Paul now flips the test and says, actually, you guys need to test yourselves. He, he flips it back on the Corinthians themselves. He brings them back to the gospel in verse 3 by stating this, Jesus is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. Paul explains this weakness power dynamic by turning the diamond of the gospel once again in front of the Corinthians by saying this, he was, talking about Jesus, he was crucified in weakness, but lives by the power of God. So he's bringing the crucifixion of Christ to them and the resurrection of Christ. And what he's basically saying is Christ is powerfully among you. What does that mean? You have tasted and seen the power of his resurrection. And then he's going to tell them to test themselves, right? So he's already saying you've tasted and seen the power of the resurrection. They have had God speak light into their hearts of darkness, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Jesus Christ. They have had their sins crucified with Christ in weakness and have been made a new creation through his awesome resurrection, the power of God. And so this leads him to confidently ask them, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Look at your lives and examine them. Do you see the evidence that Jesus Christ is in you, union with Christ? Do you see the evidence of your union with Jesus? Have you seen uh, your sin and cried out to him for forgiveness? Have you seen his power slowly but surely shape you to be more like Christ? Have you seen your life marked by sacrifice for your friends, for your family, for your church, for your enemies? Have you delighted in the holy, wild God of the Bible with the, no sane reason other than to say, the Spirit of the Son is inside of me, crying out, Abba, Father. Do you find yourselves yearning and longing for God through Jesus Christ? Do you find yourself with a divine distaste for your sin in your own lives and the sins in the lives of those who are in your church family? Do you long with communion with Christ? These are, these are the kinds of questions that the Corinthians should be asking themselves. And Paul knows the answer. Paul planted this church by simply preaching the gospel in the synagogues and the marketplaces, people saw the glory of God in the face of Christ, and they believed in the gospel, and they formed a church. So he, he was there at the beginning. He knows the answer uh, to this, this question, that once they examine themselves, they'll realize that they have tasted and seen the resurrection. And so we're going to see, wh why is he doing that? Where's this inquiry going to lead? So they're testing him, and in doing so, Paul flips it on them, and he gives them a test. That Christ is in you is the aim of the entirety of Paul's apostolic ministry 
and it is the great answer key by which we ought to grade ourselves in the great faith test. Christ is in you. It is also all that really matters. If we have not Christ in us, then we only have what is perishing and passing away. Uh, Mark Seyfried writes this when talking about in the faith. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. He says this, when he speaks of faith in this context, he is stressing the content of faith. For Paul, faith not only takes its orientation from the content of the gospel, it's also born of the gospel. Indeed, faith's origin in the proclaimed word is of fundamental importance for Paul because faith involves the act of believing. Faith, which recreates the whole human being, must know that it has arisen, not by the wisdom of human beings, but by the power of God, or in Paul's words, the resurrection of Christ. The gospel creates a space, so to speak, and it transfers us to a location, and that location is the person of Jesus Christ. This is why in Ephesians, Paul can write, you have been seated with him in heavenly places. In Colossians, he can write, your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so our second characteristic of apostolic uh, teaching aims at our union with Christ and then also to call us to constantly examine and remind ourselves that we have indeed tasted and seen the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the power of the resurrection. Our third characteristic comes from verses 6 through 10. True apostolic teaching exhorts believers to do what is good, to stand for truth, to be built up in Christ. To do what is good, to stand for truth, to be built up in Christ. So Paul is now going to turn to kind of his motivations behind his teaching of the Corinthians. He doesn't care whether or not he is found passing the apostle test. He doesn't care about that. Paul has actually three, uh, three um, characteristics that formulate the heart of what he's trying to do with the Corinthians. The first one is verses 6 through 7. I hope you will find that we have not failed the test, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong. Not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may have seemed to fail the test. While they test themselves, Paul earnestly in hopes that they do not find that he has failed his apostle test. However, <laughs> verse 7, it makes it clear that his motivation for passing the true apostle test is not so that he can be found to have passed, but rather so the church he works with is not doing bad, but is doing good. In fact, he would rather fail the apostle test if it meant the Corinthians do good and do not do what is wrong. So at the heart of what he's trying to do here is he wants them not to do wrong, and he wants them to do good. The word for wrong in the Greek is actually the word for evil. So it gives a little bit of a stronger taste that you would not do evil. And the word for right is the Greek word for, can be translated as good, beautiful, excellent. So that you would not be found doing wrong, but instead you would be found doing what is good, excellent, and beautiful. Paul desires the Corinthians to not do evil, but to do good. And don't skip, don't skip over this little phrase. We pray to God in verse 7. He's earnestly praying to God for this, this thing that he's putting in front of us. And this is actually going to start in what's called uh, an inclusio. It's basically a bookend. 
In verse 7, you've got we pray to God, and then in verse 9, he's going to mention prayer again, and it's holding everything in between it um, here. So that we all pray to God, right? That we would all bring one another before God and seek their holiness at God's throne. That's what Paul's doing here. Uh, Calvin defines prayer as this. It's very simple. The chief exercise of faith. Prayer is the chief exercise of faith. We find our holiness and the people in our church's holiness at God's throne because that's where their holiness sits, at the right hand, currently making intercession, currently making prayer on behalf of us, Jesus Christ himself. Uh, Bonhoeffer says it this way. He tells us that spiritual love knows that the most direct way to others, to other church members, is always through prayer to Christ. And that love of others is wholly dependent upon truth in Christ. And so Paul is praying to God for them not to do evil, but to do good. And now he's going to turn to truth itself. That's his second characteristic. And this is in verse 8. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. This verse really speaks for itself. He doesn't care if he passes or fails the, the apostle test. As long as the church he planted is doing good and not doing evil, and that they're concerned and they stand upon the truth. Why is he concerned with the holiness of the church? This verse uh, 8, the, the 4 connects it back to 7. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. Paul is bound to God's word and the truth in Christ Jesus. He dares not take one step away from the truth. He is unapologetically on the side of, of truth because it is the best possible thing for the church, even if it feels like the worst possible thing for the church. He's always on the side of uh, truth. Uh, the world, you know, you can look at the world around us. The world's at war with this idea of truth. Uh, in our current ever-fleeting postmodernistic age, truth belongs to each individual, and no one cares if it contradicts one another. All truth is treated as if it is of equal value, and all ideas are given an equal seat at this postmodern circle table, right? The chief virtue of the culture is tolerance, and yet the chief virtue of God and his church is holiness. Paul dares not give away to the culture, but rather turns to the word of God and the truth found in the teachings of Christ. The church's embrace, the church's embrace of these this idea of individualistic truth of the day declines. It causes the church to decline in holiness. And so when the church abandons truth, when it abandons church discipline, which is holding people to the truth, rather quickly, there's very little difference to be seen between the church and the world. It further, you know, it, I guess like to make this practical, it always scares me when people in the church, right, or myself, I only get concerned with certain topics when the media brings up these topics, but nothing else, right? I only get concerned when the media gets concerned, or it scares me too, like when I, when I view like watching movies or Hollywood and the influence of media again, uh, when the church abandons truth and church discipline, it, it goes down in holiness, and, and we see this in many ways, right? Uh, we find ourselves as a culture losing the battle of lust, giving in to sexual immorality. That was one of the things that Paul listed off in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 21. We find ourselves uh, 
addicted to technology and to entertainment to where the to the point where if it was taken away from us, could you ask the question, right? It would, would we consider it to be the worst thing possible that could happen if our technology and our, and our entertainment was taken away from us? And so here's where we need to ask the question. If we find ourselves in addiction to sin, sexual morality, pornography, uh, watching uh, movies that basically have sexual morality uh, laced throughout it, all these things, right? If we find ourselves in addiction to gossip and slander and some of these things that Paul has listed off. The question is, are we sharing our burden with one another? Are we confessing our sins with one another? Is it our heart, right, for our restoration, one another's restoration? Paul stands here in the truth, and he says he can do no other. But in having a sickly church, such as the Corinthians, his aim for them was to do good, not evil, to stand in truth, and now it's going to crescendo in their restoration and their building up, building them up in the truth. So our third characteristic here is verses 9 through 10. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. For this reason I write these things while I am away from you, that when I come I may not have to be severe in my use of authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. The word uh, restoration in verse 9 uh, the word restoration can mean, can literally be translated as perfection or repair. Paul uses it throughout his writings. Um, I agree with uh, David Garland. He's one of the commentators. He actually takes it to mean uh, that Paul is using it in the same way that he uses it in Galatians 6, 1. That he's literally using it in the sense of rest, restoring a church member caught in sin. Holiness and truth sound harsh, and yet, all the while, they're the tools that Paul insists that God uses to restore and to build up. They sound like they destroy and tear down, but in reality, they restore and they build up. Paul assures the Corinthians in verse 10 that a severe use of authority is still for the sake of building up and not tearing down. And note that Paul says, it is an authority that the Lord has given an authority that the Lord has given. Perhaps he's referring back to Matthew 18 because, again, that's an authority that the Lord has given to the church to call one another out in their sin, to restore one another in gentleness, following the steps that Jesus says. Uh, Paul is glad when he appears weak if it means that the Corinthians are strong, living out the resurrection life of Christ. Paul only cares about their holiness, their truth, and ultimately their restoration. And in verse 9, look again. He says, it's your restoration, that's what we, I quote, what we pray for. When we pray for one another, we ought to pray for each other's holiness, that we would stand firm in truth, that we would do good and not do evil, and finally, that when we do find ourselves in sin, which is inevitable, that we would be restored, that we would repent, we would return to Christ for forgiveness uh, and righteousness that's offered there. Uh, so, just kind of in my own personal prayer life, I find myself whittling it down to really two things that I pray for people. First, that their faith and their desire for communing with God through Christ would be given to them so that they would have this desire to really be with God through Jesus Christ, their faith, right? Strengthen their faith. And then the second one is that they would be protected from false teaching and would be restored when they're found in sin. Those are kind of the two main things 
uh, that I emphasize in prayer. And that's, that's what Paul essentially is saying here too. The Bible is full of warnings given over and over again to the church. Paul, when leaving the Ephesian elders, he says this. This is Acts 20, 31. Therefore, be alert. Remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. For three years, night or day, admonishing everyone with tears. He then goes on to say, wolves are going to come in, and they're even going to rise up among the actual congregation, the people in the church themselves. Um, it's not mentioned like a possibility or a probability. It's mentioned more like it will happen, so be prepared. And then he finishes in Acts uh, 20, 32. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So again, in all that warning, three years of tears, nothing day and night but warnings, God then commends them to God and his word, and he says God and his word are sufficient for our life of holiness, our stand in the truth, and our restoration. So our third mark, true apostolic teaching, uh, exhorts believers to do what is good, to stand in the truth, and to be built up in Christ. This is our final one, the fourth one. True apostolic teaching commands unity among believers that issues from union with the Trinity. It commands a unity among believers that issues from union with the Trinity. And this is verses 11 through 14. I'm going to read 11 through 13 real quick. Finally, brothers, rejoice. Aim for restoration. Comfort one another. Agree with one another. Live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. And so in those just, just in verse 11 alone, there's five imperative statements, commands. The first one is, you all must rejoice, which apparently in ancient Greek letters, ancient Roman letters of the first century, they use this word rejoice a lot of times to literally mean goodbye or salutation, see you later. Um, and so Paul's likely using it kind of double meaning, right? He's saying goodbye because he is concluding his letter, but he's also using the word rejoice intentionally. And you might be like, after reading that, I'm supposed to rejoice? Why would, why would he tell me to rejoice? That sounds kind of heavy, right? All this heavy stuff. Why should we rejoice? Uh, he says rejoice, right? Because at the end of the day, church discipline and restoration of someone in sin has joy, as, as, as its end. It's the joy of that person being restored. Their joy in God is restored. It's the joy of the church seeing once again that God is at work among them in perfect unity and peace and everyone's um, restoring and repenting of sin. Um, and so joy is ultimately at the end of this. Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question of it says this, what is the chief end of man? And it's followed by the answer, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. All the pain and suffering and crucifying of the flesh really is for our joy and God's glory. You cannot cling to sin and enjoy the holy God at the same time. In fact, you could summarize that the entire, bo the, the entire Bible is about fixing that problem, how, how we are in sin, and yet we're supposed to be with a holy God. And right, the Bible presents ultimately that Jesus and his crucifixion and resurrection is the solution to that problem. The next two kind of commands are um, 
found this, that you might be made perfect. You might be made perfect or aim for restoration. That's the same word. This perfect word is coming back up, the repair word that we talked about. And then this next one, be comforted. And notice here uh, that it's got a, a passive sense to it. You are being made perfect, or you are being uh, restored. You are rejoicing, or you are being comforted. It implies uh, one thing, really. Well, two things. I'll say it that way. It implies that God is the one doing the work, but the second thing that it implies is that we're called to do it to one another. Like, how can I be comforted apart from either God coming down himself and comforting me, or God through one of the fellow members at Remedy Church reaching out to me and comforting me. And so it's this call that the church would be comforting to one another, and again, restoring, referencing back to church discipline. It's one of our duties uh, to, to restore one another. The final two commands are literally agree with one another and live in peace. Uh, John MacArthur says this about the, the phrase agree with one another. The command to be like-minded reveals a third exhortation, be committed to the truth. He's literally saying we are to strive to have the same convictions and beliefs regarding God and his word. We're to strive for like-mindedness, truth. Um, the early church, we could say it this way, the early church in Acts was characterized like this. One of the characteristics was they were devoted to apostolic teaching. That's what, that's what we mean here, being like-minded, that we're all devoted. If the apostles teach it, we're devoted to it. We're, do, we're devoted to obey it. Uh, Paul continues in verse 12, telling the Corinthians that they must greet one another with a holy kiss. And we could, we could talk about how we can't do that, right, with uh, COVID and our culture freaking out about kisses. But many, uh, many cultures around the world, when they greet one another, it's a little kiss on uh, the cheek. But here, uh, it's a holy kiss, and it's set to remind people that they, first of all, they're part of a family, right, because they're loving, they're greeting each other like a family member, but the second thing here is that they are a holy family. They are God's family, and behind this practice lies the entire ideology that Paul has just been talking about, right, Uh, concerned with one another's holiness and restoration, uh, the, the whole practice of greeting one another with a holy kiss is the idea that we are part of the same family and that we are called to holiness. And in those two things, that's what Paul's simply saying to the Corinthians. Be family with one another. Be a holy family with one another. Uh, so this seems to be an invention of the early church. Um, obviously, cultures do greet each other with kisses, but this idea of a holy kiss seemed to be an actual practice that the church itself invented and so I guess maybe a side note we could, we could say here is like, do we think through, is there any practices that we ourselves can do, right, bodily practices that can communicate to one another that we're family, that we're a holy family? Because uh, the early church did practical things to remind themselves of the ideological things, right? Their union with Christ is still recognized with Paul. He ends with this, and all the saints greet you as well, Right? He's, he's assuming they've passed the test. Even the saints with Paul are still treating them like a holy family. So now, our, our last verse, right? Verse 14. It's a benediction. He starts with this word, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Uh, commentator Mark Seaford points out 
uh, a chiasm, right? This is a, a format, a literature device to kind of uh, basically organize things. But essentially, the book starts in chapter 1 with Paul declaring over them the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And then at the very end of the book, he now inverses the, the order. He now talks about the God of peace, the God of love, and then he goes on to say the grace of the Lord Jesus. So it was grace, peace, and now it's peace, grace. And the whole point of that is just to say everything in between the first and last chapter of Corinthians has been out of a desire for restoring you to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it's all found in the grace and peace that belongs to Jesus Christ. It can only be found there. So the whole thing, right, is uh, uh, just combined with the word grace and peace and now peace and grace. So verse 14 reads, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Grace is given to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, the love of God is extended to us through the giving of his son, right? John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. The fellowship we have with Jesus and the Trinity and Jesus' church is brought into reality by the Spirit, the indwelling of the Spirit. So grace is identified with Jesus, love with the Father, and fellowship with the Holy Spirit. God in three persons is working in perfect unity, like-mindedness, to bring about holiness by grace, obedience by love, and unity by fellowship. He's doing these things. He himself serves as the model of the church, working with one another in like-mindedness and unity for holiness. This is not our own doing, right, but it's of God. So our question is, right, we can ask some questions. Have you been restored in sin ever in your life, right? Have you ever been restored in sin? This is not your own doing because, or another church member's doing, but this is rather God through another church member. Um, have you ever tasted and seen of the glory of God or the resurrection? This is not of your own doing or through whoever was preaching or teaching or just sharing a message from the gospel, but rather this is God through you or another person's proclamation of the gospel. At the end of the day, God in three persons is sufficient for our union with Christ and the holiness of the church. And so we can say it this way in conclusion. Christ is our entrance into relationship with God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. We are baptized by his death and his resurrection in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The patristics, again, define salvation as us participating or sharing in the Son's relationship with the Father. And for them, this is the clear teaching of Scripture. We received entrance into God's presence as sons and daughters because Jesus gives his sonship to us. The Holy Spirit places us in Christ, and in Christ we have bold access to the Father. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. No one has seen God except the Son who is at his side. And this Son became flesh and tabernacled among us. This Son, and this Son only, has made the Father known to us. He, the eternal Son of God, has now become man. He was crucified on the cursed tree for our sins. And now he was resurrected that we might live out unity, holiness, and truth. 
by the power of his resurrection. He has made all things new. He has breathed upon his followers the Holy Spirit and has promised himself fully to them. He has shared the scriptures and where he is at in the Moses, the law, the law, the Psalms, and the prophets. He has pointed himself out through here. And so I'm going to end with a quote about union with Christ and holiness and how Christ of the Bible ought to be the apple of our eye. John Calvin writes this, For how comes it, that's an awesome way to start, for how comes it, for how comes it that we are carried about with so many strange doctrines, quoting Hebrews 13.9, but because the excellence of Christ is not perceived by us, for Christ alone makes all other things suddenly vanish. Hence there is nothing that Satan so much endeavors to accomplish as to bring on mists with the view of obscuring Christ, because he knows that by this means the way is opened up for every kind of falsehood. This, therefore, is the only means of retaining as well as restoring pure doctrine, to place Christ before the view, such as he is with all his blessings, that his excellence may be truly perceived. And so, church, our call here from the apostolic teaching is that we would earnestly desire to put Christ in all of his glory and his excellence in view, and we would submit to him as Lord. Let's pray. Father, um, I'm glad that you, you tell us uh, it's the grace of the Lord Jesus, it's your love, and it's the fellowship of the Holy Spirit that holds the church together. It's not our own works, even our devotion to apostolic teaching and our carrying out of church discipline is by your grace, by your love, and by your fellowship. Um, I pray that you would, for each individual here, Lord, that we would take responsibility for each other's faith and each other's walk with Christ. Uh, when we sin against people, uh, we would be restored. Uh, when people sin against us, we would seek to restore them um, for the sake of your name that we might glorify you and we might as a church enjoy you forever. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.